single one of his wrestling matches. And as his success continued, his fame, his popularity soared. People came from miles around to see this man, this wall of muscle, get into the ring and wrestle. Eventually, his fame spread overseas. He was invited to take part in the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. Um, Many people doubted how well the Terrible Turk would do against the best in the world. Um, But it turns out that our friend Yusuf tore through the competition. He won every single one of his matchups, collecting an incredible amount of prize money. Interestingly, he insisted that whenever he was paid, he wasn't to accept paper dollars, which meant very little in his home country. He was to be paid in golden coins. So he won the entire tournament. He didn't lose a single match. And at the end of it, he collected $5,000 in prize money, which at the time, of course, was a fortune. So on the 4th of July, 1898, the terrible Turk got on a ship which was to take him back home to Turkey. But on this particular day, visibility was low. It was terrible sailing conditions, not long into the journey, the ship carrying the terrible Turk collided with a British ship. Both boats began to take on water. They both began to sink. Now, the eyewitness accounts differ on whether he jumped overboard or if he fell overboard, but they all agree on one thing. The moment Yusuf Ismail hit the water, he sunk like a ton of bricks. No rescue swimmer could get near him. No lifeboat could save him. He hit the water and he drowned. Why? Because he had nearly $10,000 worth of gold strapped around his waist in a money belt. He was so desperate to keep hold of his money, it ended up taking his life. He was so desperate to attain great riches, to own great wealth, that in the end, his great wealth owned him. The Bible has a fascinating verse in the Old Testament. It says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, it's it's unlikely that you are trusting in horses or chariots, but you are putting your trust in something. Yusuf put his trust in the wrong thing. He built his life around financial success. Perhaps for you, you are Um, putting your trust in the opinions of others. So everything you do is controlled, is driven by the hope of that person's approval or that person's acceptance. And it drives your decisions and controls your actions. Maybe you are putting your trust, you are building your life around career. And so everything you do is designed for that promotion or that position. And it drives your decisions and controls what you do. Or maybe, like the terrible Turk, like many other people in the world, perhaps you are living for financial success. If only I had more money, then my life would be easier. I could go where I wanted to go. I could buy what I wanted to buy. I could insulate myself from the problems of this world. If only I had more money. So you build your life around financial success. Today, we are looking at the story of somebody who loved money so much It caused him to turn his back on his friends, his family, his nation, and his God. He built his life. He trusted in the wrong thing. If you have Luke 19 open 
in front of you. We'll go through it a few verses at a time, so it would be helpful if you keep it open there. Starting at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So straight away we're told that this man is a tax collector. Now this may surprise you, but um, there once was a time when tax collectors were not well liked. Um, It can be easy to skip past that detail and think, well of course, Nobody likes giving their money to the tax man. Why would they? But actually, this is a little different. I want you to imagine that by some unlikely and, God willing, impossible set of circumstances, imagine that our country was invaded by the militant group ISIS, for example. They are experts in violence. They are quick to shed blood. Imagine that they control this country. They have conquered this land. Imagine how you would feel knowing that people that you love and care about have been hurt and killed at their hands. Imagine how you would feel if you were to look out this window at the back and see them patrolling through the streets in their military uniform with their weaponry. Imagine how we would hate them. Imagine then how you would feel if a friend of yours, somebody who lives on your road, or a work colleague, somebody who is supposed to be on your side, turns traitor against our country and joins ISIS. Their job will be to take your money and fund this evil occupying empire. Now that may seem like a ridiculous parallel between the Roman Empire and ISIS, and in some ways it is. I mean, the Romans built roads and uh, aqueducts and baths and theatres and libraries, but they were also barbaric, weren't they? So they conquered many people groups, they controlled many lands, and every now and then there would be an uprising, there would be a rebellion. On one occasion, for example, um, there was an uprising and the Roman army rounded up all 2,000 people that they believed to be responsible and they had them all crucified together. 2,000 crosses, 2,000 people crying out in pain. Yeah, the Romans were brilliant, but they were barbaric as well. Of course, they pioneered the bloodthirsty Colosseum, um, which took the lives of nearly half a million people. And later, Emperor Nero would try and crush this religious uprising by using Christians as human torches to light his garden parties. This is the empire that the tax collectors are propping up. To make matters worse, um, corruption was widespread amongst tax collectors. It was routine. It was standard practice for a tax collector to charge more than they needed, to pay the Romans what they were owed, and to keep the rest for themselves. So as your life gets harder, their life gets easier. As you suffer, the tax collectors are surrounded by comfort and luxury. You see why tax collectors, they were not just disliked, they were hated. So... Back to Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So Jesus is entering Jericho, which at the time is just a wonderful place to live. It was um, well known for its well-watered plains, its fertile soil, its near constant sunshine. In fact, the word Jericho literally means place of fragrance. 
And the city probably got its name from the scent of the fruits and spices that sprang up all over the city. One historian calls Jericho a miniature paradise. And so, in a town that has everything to offer, we see one person who can buy anything in the world that he desires. Zacchaeus, we find out, is not only a tax collector, he is a chief tax collector. Did you see that? He is advanced in his treachery. He is entrenched in his betrayal in all of Jericho. There is nobody quite like this man, Zacchaeus. So picture the scene with me. Um, One morning, Zacchaeus wakes up on his four-poster bed, and he's in his wonderful mansion, surrounded by all the luxuries that money can buy. And he gets out of bed, and he stretches and says, Good morning, Jericho. Another day, another dollar. It's good to be me. And he puts on his wonderful handmade Armani robe and he steps out of the front door and gets onto a chariot which takes him into town. And there he plans to cheat, steal and extort money for the rest of the day as he has done every other day of his career. But today the streets are quiet. Almost nobody's around. And as he gets off the chariot and notices the, um, the lack of people around, he sees perhaps a group and says to them, Hey, where are you going? As they hurry away. And they say, haven't you heard? Jesus is coming to Jericho. So in a time before the internet and before newspapers and before um, radio and television, Jesus' fame seemed to go before him. We're told that there are crowds along the roadside hoping to catch a glimpse of this man, Jesus. You can imagine one of them saying, I've heard that this man, Jesus, can do miracles. Someone else saying, I've heard he can raise the dead. Perhaps somebody else was saying, I've heard that his teachings are from heaven itself. There's a a sense of excitement as people crowd along the roadside, hoping to catch a glimpse of this man, Jesus. But by the time Zacchaeus turns up, it's too late. He is too small. The crowd is too big. There is no way he's going to get a look in at this man, Jesus. Zacchaeus, it turns out, is a very little man. And a very little man was he. So verse 4, he ran ahead. You see that in verse 4? He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see since Jesus was coming that way. Zacchaeus does two things here that are almost unthinkable. Firstly, he runs. He runs ahead. Now, in this day, running was not something that a dignified older man would do. It was, frankly, beneath him. It would have been embarrassing, humiliating. You'd be wearing these long, flowing robes. In order to run, you'd have to sort of hitch them up in front of you so your legs didn't get trapped in the fabric as you run. You'd be carrying this great bundle of fabric, which is why absolutely nobody did it. It was the kind of thing a child would do, but not a dignified older man. So... Zacchaeus bundles up his fabric and he runs ahead, firstly. And then secondly, he further embarrasses himself by climbing a tree. If you um, walk home this afternoon and look up into a tree and you see Sir Alan Sugar, for example, halfway up a tree, clinging on for dear life with his suit torn and his shoes scuffed and twigs stuck in his hair, Would you think that's normal behaviour? Or would you think he's lost his mind? Zacchaeus, what are you doing? You look like a fool. Zacchaeus runs and Zacchaeus 
climbs, he does two things that are culturally unacceptable, utterly undignified. But Zacchaeus would rather be thought of as a fool than be so foolish as to miss this opportunity to see Jesus. For all his faults, for all his failings, for all of his outright sin, we can say this much for Zacchaeus. In this moment, there is nothing more important to him than seeing Jesus. Can the same be said of you? What is most important to you? Looking dignified, appearing respectable, or seeing Jesus? Because this is, let's face it, not a day in which going to church or reading your Bible or giving your time and effort and energy and prayers and attention and affection and finances are considered respectable things to do. You're here on your weekend, giving up your time in the hopes of seeing Jesus. Do you realize how undignified that would make you to many people in the world? But whose opinion of you matters the most? Let me say this. If you remember nothing else from this afternoon's sermon, and I wouldn't blame you, remember this. If you are unwilling to ever look foolish, you are unlikely to ever see Jesus. If you are unwilling to ever look foolish, you are unlikely to ever see Jesus. If your dignity is what you're holding on to above all else, you are unlikely to humble yourself enough to see and your need for Jesus. Zacchaeus runs and Zacchaeus climbs, and he looked a fool to every single person who saw him except one. The one person whose opinion matters. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus invites himself round to Zacchaeus' house. Now to us, that may seem a little presumptuous. To invite yourself round, I'm coming round your house for dinner, and presumably his 12 disciples would come as well. 2,000 years ago, this was a royal custom. It was the kind of thing that a king or a prince would do. And in fact, the honour was with the guest, was with the host rather, because they had been entrusted with this great responsibility to look after this incredibly important person. So by taking this custom on himself, Jesus is doing two things. Firstly, he's alluding to his royalty. He is, after all, the king of kings and the prince of peace. There is no higher royalty than this man, Jesus. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly to our story, he's bestowing this incredible honor on Zacchaeus, the least loved person in Jericho, the traitor, the tax collector, and Jesus singles him out for this incredible honor. But why? I mean, Jesus could have had his pick, couldn't he? He's surrounded by people who have come out to see him. Surrounded by people who would love to get to know him. Who would love to have Jesus round for dinner. Why don't you pick someone a bit more religious, Jesus? Why don't you pick someone who hasn't betrayed their country? Why don't you pick somebody a bit, a bit more honest? Pick anybody but Zacchaeus, the tax collector. For me, this is one of the most precious moments in all of the New Testament. What is going on here is absolutely stunning to me. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people who are favourable to him but hostile to Zacchaeus. People who love him but hate 
Zacchaeus. And Jesus knows, doesn't he, how much these people must hate their tax collector. He knows how hated Zacchaeus is. And he knows how these people will react if he is kind to this man, Zacchaeus. And yet, Jesus wades headlong into their scorn and their shame and their muttering for the sake of Zacchaeus. Jesus takes dishonour upon himself so that he can bring honour to Zacchaeus. He loses favour with the crowd. He sacrifices his reputation with all of these people for the sake of a rotten sinner who doesn't deserve it and could never have earned it. That is beautiful. And clearly, Zacchaeus is profoundly moved, deeply changed by this display of love. It is by doing things like this everywhere Jesus goes, by losing favour with the crowds everywhere he goes, by healing the wrong people on the wrong day, upsetting the religious elite, by siding and showing affection and favour to the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It is by losing favour with the crowds that eventually they will say, crucify him. We're sick of this man, Jesus. Get rid of him. Crucify him. To put it bluntly, love like this will kill him. As I said, it has a profound effect on Zacchaeus. When do you think was the last time he was loved like that? At such personal cost. When do you think was the last time somebody said to Zacchaeus, hey, I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to come round. I want to spend some time with you. Zacchaeus scrambles down the tree, deeply changed, profoundly moved. Verse 8, he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Zacchaeus, who had given up everything for the sake of money, now gives up his money for the sake of Christ. Money is no longer his God. Jesus is. There has been a profound change in his allegiance, in his affections. And Jesus confirms it by saying, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. A couple of things to notice before we close. Notice firstly that Jesus loved Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus had nothing to offer. Zacchaeus put nothing on the table. He brought nothing good to the bargain. It's not as though Jesus went up to the tree in verse 5 and said, Oh, Zacchaeus, what a shame. I was hoping to come round, but it turns out you're just a bit too sinful. Your life's just too much of a mess. I'll tell you what, why don't you come down out of the tree, give back some of the money you've stolen, make restitution, do a bit of good for a change, Zacchaeus, and then maybe we can talk. Thank God he doesn't say that. No, he looks into the tree and he doesn't see a traitor or a tax collector. He sees a little lost sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. He sees a broken sinner in desperate need of a saviour. And he loves him. Zacchaeus, having been shown great love, comes down out of the tree and it changes him. It makes him want to be loving. Having been shown kindness by Jesus, it makes him want to be kind to others. And so he gives away the money that he's stolen. Half of everything to the poor, straight out. And then on top of that, four times everything he's stolen. The Old Testament um, required that a thief would have to pay back everything they'd stolen plus one-fifth. So, for example, if I'd stolen £100 from you, I would have to pay back 120 
Zacchaeus says, I will pay back four times the amount. That is an incredible change in his allegiance. That is an incredible change in his heart. So make no mistake, Zacchaeus is not saved by his good works. He hasn't got any. But having been saved, Zacchaeus does good works. Zacchaeus responds to the kindness that he's been shown. And secondly, notice that Zacchaeus is not saved by his great knowledge. We're not saved by knowledge, we're saved by grace. If you had stopped Zacchaeus on his way down the tree and said, Hey Zacchaeus, what's going on here? What do you think he would have answered? I don't know. But did you see the kindness this man Jesus had shown me? Did you see the way he just gave himself up for me? I have to get to know him. But Zacchaeus, have you been sanctified or glorified or stupefied? I don't know. He doesn't have a great grasp of theology. He just seeks a a relationship with Jesus. That is the essence of faith. And of course, I'm not saying that theological learning is unimportant. Um, I'm a theology student, so I shouldn't. Um, But I am saying that it's perfectly possible to have a head full of knowledge and a cold heart towards God. Zacchaeus is moved in his heart, and there'll be time for his theological understanding probably over the meal he's about to share with Jesus. But you see, his desire is for a relationship with Jesus. So he's not saved by his um, good works, and he's not saved by his great theological understanding. He's saved by grace. Jesus looked up into the tree, and he saw somebody who didn't deserve his kindness. And yet, he was kind to him, and he gave himself up for him. He sacrificed for him in a way that would foreshadow the greater sacrifice that would be made shortly after this event. And Zacchaeus, seeing Jesus clearly, seeing his character, seeing the way that he had given himself up for him, he is moved, he responds in his heart, he comes down out of the tree, and his outward actions reflect the inward change that has taken place. He gives away money that had previously been his God. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. I find it fascinating that we are not told why Zacchaeus was so keen on seeing Jesus that day. Isn't that interesting? We're just told that he was, and we're told the extraordinary lengths that he goes to in order to see Jesus, but we don't know why. Perhaps, and I'm speculating here, but go with me, perhaps as as Zacchaeus looked around his life of luxury, everything that money could buy, perhaps he began to feel that these things were not satisfying his deepest longings the riches that he had surrounded himself with, the riches he'd given everything up for, were just not delivering on the promises they had made. You know, a shocking amount of people who have attained great wealth and great success have later said, you know, it doesn't satisfy. It has not touched my deepest longings. The comedian and actor uh, Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see that it is not the answer. Russell Brand recently wrote, what about clubs? What about parties? When I'm there, I think, is this it? Is this all there is? Is this what all the fuss is about? It's quite possible that Zacchaeus was feeling that sense of disillusionment that many people before and since have felt. Maybe, like Zacchaeus, you're starting to think, is this it? Is this all there is. Is this what all the fuss is about? Go to school, 
get an education, get a job, get a car, get a family, go on holiday, get a promotion, make a will. Is this it? Is this all the fuss is about? Perhaps you went to school, but your grades weren't quite what you'd hoped they would be. Um, Or maybe you went on holiday, but it only lasted a week. Or you got a, a job, but you also got that work colleague. And you got married, or you got in a relationship, but it's just not quite like the movies. And perhaps you're starting to realize that the toys and trinkets that have been dangled in front of you your entire life do not satisfy. Maybe that's why Zacchaeus went to see Jesus that day. A man who had everything in a city that had everything to offer. Or maybe, maybe in the quietness of the night, Zacchaeus was troubled sometimes by his conscience. The things that this man has done, the empire that he is supporting and propping up. Perhaps he would think about his family or his friends. You know, his parents gave him the name Zacchaeus, which means the righteous one or the just one which is a sign of what they'd hoped he would grow up to be, righteous and just. How it must have broken their heart when he turned out to be a tax collector, more loyal to money than anything else on the planet. Given that Zacchaeus is not a pantomime villain, but a real person with hopes and dreams and feelings, perhaps sometimes his conscience would be troubled by the people that he has betrayed and stabbed in the back. Perhaps Zacchaeus had heard that this man, Jesus, has even forgiven tax collectors before. I don't know why Zacchaeus decided to see Jesus that day, and I don't know what brought you to church this afternoon either, but I do know that if God can save Zacchaeus, he can save even you. If God can save Zacchaeus, he can save you. One of my favorite hymns has these words, um, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's a beautiful, poetic, emotive way of saying, hey, Jesus died for you. The one who gave up his reputation with the crowds for the sake of Zacchaeus gave up his life for you. The one who was forsaken by the crowds for Zacchaeus was forsaken by God for you. That is stunning love. That is life-changing love. This man, Jesus, shortly after this event, full of grace and compassion, went to the cross, and there he laid down his life in our place for our sins as our saviour. And he died. And three days later, he rose again. He ascended on high. He is seated at the right hand of God, having conquered sin, death, and Satan. And he did it for you. If God can save Zacchaeus, he can save anyone. Christian friends, who have you given up on? Who have you believed is too far gone, too hard-hearted, too entrenched in their sin? If God can save Zacchaeus, he can save anyone. Perhaps, like me, you are too often worried about your appearance. Do you look respectable to the outside world? Whose opinion of you matters the most? We have so much to learn from the life of Zacchaeus. And if you're not a Christian today, perhaps you could learn from the life of Zacchaeus as well. You know, in his day, it took things as unexpected and as um, uh, unrespectable as uh, running and climbing in order to see Jesus. In our day, it might require things as unexpected and unrespectable as 
going to church and reading your Bible. But that is where you'll see Jesus clearly. And my hope for you, my prayer, is that as you see Jesus, you'll see this man full of love who gave himself up for you. How can we remain unmoved? How can we stay as we are? As Jesus stood at the foot of the tree and called out to Zacchaeus, it's as though he stands at the end of your row and calls out to you, hey, come down. Come down from that tree. Humble yourself. I want to get to know you. I want you to know God. I want you to know freedom from the vices of this world, from the money or the seeking after people's approval or the chasing after a career. I want you to know what true freedom looks like, true forgiveness of sins. As we saw on Sunday, Jesus says in Revelation 3, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will eat with me. Jesus is inviting himself round for dinner. So the question is, how will you respond? Will you trust in him? Some people trust in chariots, and some trust in horses. Some trust in power, and some trust in opinions. Some trust in... Um, houses and some trust in holidays but today we are invited to put our trust in the name of the Lord our God and be saved let's pray Father God we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross in our place for our sins we thank you Jesus that you weren't coerced that nobody twisted your arm but that you willingly laid down your life for us people who don't deserve it and could never have earned it. You have been so good to us. And we pray that as we see the kindness of Jesus, it would drive us to be kind to others. As we see the goodness of Jesus, it would cause us to be good to others. We pray that you would um, humble us, Jesus. Cause us to love you as we should. Amen.